and as I continue on my journey as a rogue journalist and broadcaster, it's always good to uh, connect with cats that have uh, found their way to the uh, old Pueblo in the desert, and my uh, guest found his voice before he moved here, but as a New Yorker, I can just say after 20 plus years, you know, I found my voice in Tucson, and all the magical things in my life have occurred here, and all the crazy things but I wouldn't turn my back on it, even in 110 degree heat with no rain in sight. And uh, my guest has been making irrational music uh, for the last 40 or 50 years. Jeff Cranky, welcome to the Jake Feinberg Show. Yeah, thanks. Good to be here. Can you, can you talk about the first rig that you got? Um, you know, I'm talking like high school band room, the first Moog synths that you were able to get your hands on approximately in the mid-70s? It, actually, it, it was around uh, 1980. I, I, I got a kind of a late start. I was a music fanatic, a lot of radio. Right. Uh, but I didn't get into music until, uh, you know, nearly graduation of college. Uh, and I, was, uh, I went to Penn State, and I befriended a, a guy who was studying film and music there, Rob Angus, and uh, he had access to the electronic music studio. He was doing electronic music and performance and uh, invited me into the studio there. And, and there was a big Moog synthesizer, you know, like a wall, you know, <laughs> eight by eight or something. It's humongous. Way, you know, it's just incredibly daunting. I didn't do much with it myself. Uh, he, but he would take my, I would uh, improvise with voice. And he would run it into the Moog and and uh, various tape decks. And uh, do we have? Do we have? I mean, do we have? Uh, do we have uh, audio recordings of that stuff? Mm, a, a <laughs> you know, I'm just wondering. Did that stuff is where it's at? Yeah, that's where it's at. But no, yeah. I want. I wanted to ask you, like, being an improviser, <clears throat> even though you were latent to actually the application of music. Were you seeking out instrumental? What was the kind of music? Were you going to see a lot of live music in high school? Or were you just into other stuff? I was into other stuff. Um, yeah, I, I, you know, in, I don't know, probably 13, 14 years old, I discovered a radio show outside of Chicago um, that played really obscure, primarily European music. Um, wow. Imported music. Like what? what it was at the time. Oh, bands like uh, Guru Guru and Jane and Gong and Can. Mm. And, uh, and that was my introduction to to music that was out of, you know, out of the ordinary. And I, I just completely fell in love with it and became fanatical about it. And, and uh, primarily the records I bought were all imported. Um, and then I, I, you know, I got to college and I started doing radio shows of that kind of music. Um, and, and then I discovered improvised music, um, you know, more domestic, uh, really small label indie, indie, you know, DIY label kind of stuff. Wow. Um, wow. So you, I mean, you were like, first of all, were they playing like full sides of can records and that kind of stuff? <laughs> I mean, because uh, you know what I want? I, yeah, go ahead. I, I, I mean, no commercials, just straight through. Oh yeah, no. no See, I mean, like that—that—that that, that is why we were—we were so evolved at that time. Uh, auditory learning medium was still the primary learning medium. Uh, 
everybody le- learns through print, but there wasn't as an emphasis on the visualization or the look of the musician. It was just about the burning qualities of the soul and the ears. I'm wondering, like, that is not, I mean, if I'm, you know, I'm fascinated. How would you describe uh, that outside the ordinary music? Is it pro- progressive rock and roll? What was the rhythm different? Because that they the cult following on those bands, it's not my bag per se, but though that yeah. cult following is deep, and you were there at the ground floor when it was being, when it was happening, obviously put you on your path. Yeah, indeed. Yeah, you know, I think we call it mostly space music, and mm. there was a lot of prog. I, I, I don't listen to much prog at all anymore, uh, nor space do I listen music. to that much space music. But it was this sort of space rock, um, prog, uh, and and then a little later, it, I got more into new music. Uh, you know, more c- kind of modern, uh, uh, you know, classical stuff, Steve Reich and, and you know, early Philip Glass, Harry Parch, and folks like that. Uh, and then, and then that sort of the noise, the noise stuff, and the uh, you know, uh, and then it was cassette culture, and <laughs> super exciting. Times. Well, no, I, I want to be very clear. I, I need you to talk about this because this cat has been in my soul since I started my show twelve years ago. You're talking about a, a co-joining of of this space music with Harry Parch in what the mid to late seventies? When was that? Yeah, the uh, late late seventies. Now, how did they do that? And he was—he had the different octaves, and he made his own instruments. I mean, Emil, yeah. all these cats, and like, I mean, dude, my brain would have been blown wide open if I was hearing totally. that in the real time. Man. Absolutely, yep. Super exciting. Um, yeah, I just needed—I needed some help. I needed somebody to sort of nudge me into the studio and make me uh, realize, help me realize that I didn't actually need to be a you know academically trained or you know particularly proficient on a, on a on an instrument that i can just start working with sound and and exploring uh you know sound manipulation and and composing using the studio you know as an instrument and that's that was my ticket in did you find uh i mean would you say that uh that can you just talk about your experience on the bandstand? Because so much of what your collaborations, so much of what you've done has been solo endeavors, and it wasn't like you were playing, you know, country western R and B in some sweaty bars in, you know, Happy Valley, right. Pennsylvania. You know, like yeah. you, you know, like. But in terms of like, in terms of like, what was the sounds going off in your head? once you got the nudge to go into the studio or did does stuff just sort of fall out of you at one time? How does that creative process work, especially early on in your life before you had any success? Yeah. I, I, you know, coming from a a place of a, as a a listener um, and a promoter of music, you know, really, I, in fact, I produced concerts at Penn state. I brought uh, Fred Frith and the band called the Muffins and and amazing percussionist, vocalist David Moss. And I think it was really Moss's work, um, who, who was using his voice to, you know, create, you know, nonverbal sounds that, and then layer them and, uh, create these really textural sort of landscapes just with his voice and percussion. And 
you know, hearing that, you know, just the immediacy of the voice um, just made it very intuitively easy for me to just start making sounds uh, for, you know, my partner at the time who was, who got me into music, um, Rob, uh, to, to manipulate and start layering. And, and then he kind of taught me how to use the studio. And uh, I went from there. Um, you, uh, so who was, uh, tell me more about this Cat Moss. It's just interesting because it, I just flashed on my, two of my old, dear Italian friends who had a band where the lead singer, he was not uh, articulating, it was just a bunch of mixed tongues, but it was coming into some uh, vocal awareness, some sort of awareness through rhythm uh, and healing through that, even though it wasn't a language. And and where did you first discover, how'd you bring him in? How'd you get hip to him? Yeah, yeah. As what you just described, is, it seems to be uh, much like how uh, I experienced. Exactly, it's crazy. Work. Yeah, yeah. I, I bought an album. I, you know, I, you know, in the seventies and eighties, I would just go in a record store and 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 look for albums that might be interesting, and I experimented. I had no idea who the guy was, but on the back of the of the jacket, he had mentioned a bunch of people he'd worked with, some of whom I recognized somewhat but it also worked with fred frit who i was more familiar with and um oh well that sound that looks pretty interesting i'll try it and i you know the the album just really had a pretty strong impact on me um in fact i brought him and fred frith to penn state to do a performance um back in like 1981 what were you part of, like the the student committee for for entertainment or something? I mean, the bud- yeah. <laughs> no, serious. <laughs> like, like how did I mean? Doing it on my own, but I, I got I got the university to put up money. Wait, wait, hold on. Um, how can I mean? This is beautiful. profound. You're not in a. You were like a. So you had a lot of street cred there. I mean, can you explain how you did? I don't know. I, don't, I have no idea. No, you don't know. I mean, no I one's just going to fish off. money out of the bank for a you know yeah. a wayward college student you know yeah i, I know it's, it's crazy there were like you know 300 people there um uh free concert in a beautiful auditorium um and i'm sure 290 of them had no idea what to expect and, <laughs> uh and you know most of them were really fascinated and, and blown away by it certainly people were walking out uh it wasn't for them but but you know, I think I was able to turn people on to some new music, and it and it inspired me. It it, it gave me uh, an outlet for my to get started, uh, just vocalizing. Um, well, I have to ask you. I'm I'm delighted um, because, uh, well, you know, you moved you moved out to Seattle in '81, and I wanted you to talk about how you. Um, what that scene, what was the, because, you know, like Roach, Brother Roach was doing some trio stuff in the early 80s with some cats. I can't remember their names, but a lot of his stuff just started out of the back of a record store. Um, yeah. And like, um, were you, was there an Odin? Did you have to, did you sing for your supper performing live solo or were you, like, how did you sing for your supper when you, how did you integrate into that scene? Yeah, um, it, there was a really uh, interesting uh, organization called Soundwork uh, that was putting on shows of, of new music and improv and sort of about jazz and 
electronic music. Um, what was it called? I, what was it called? It was called Soundwork. So, it was based uh, in Seattle? It was just that based out there? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. In Seattle, run by a guy named Herb Levy, who's, who's now in the outside of you know, Fort Worth or Dallas somewhere. Wow. Uh, but he, he brought all these incredible. <laughs> moving to Seattle was, was, was a great move. I, it, you know, within a day, I was hearing about shows that were just really intriguing and started showing up at them and meeting folks and, you know, uh, got involved. And I think, you know, within a six months, nine months, Angus and I were doing a performance there with our setup. Uh, and, you know, it just kind of took off. And, of course, Seattle is, uh, you know, is an amazing scene now and has been for a long time. Then it was, it was, it was much smaller um, but it was it, it was open and exciting and were you I mean there was no it wasn't like there there was a cartage company coming to grab all your rigs like I mean can you talk about the kind of how you and your partner uh, oh yeah uh, play, like what, what, I mean because to me like it was um, synthesizers had begun to really um, sink their teeth into like other instruments and like the humanity of it all but. The early 80s, there was still... Anyway, I really... St- I'm curious about the gear that you had. You know, there was no cartridge, so you, you I mean, I, you know, you guys might have been lugging that around, you know? We, we, we were, and it was, you know, it would take all day to set up. <laughs> we, we, had a, we, had, we were using reel-to-reels. Um, oh, you have to do... I need to hear some of this stuff, dude. Yeah, yeah, this is pretty, pretty cool. We, we were using two or three reel-to-reels, and we, and we had a, uh, a sort of a counterweight uh, pole system that would so that, you know, between the you know we're running one 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 deck into another and getting the you know the perpetronic looping kind of thing going. Oh my god, but, that's insane! So I think what Rob what Rob did, which was really fascinating, is he devised a sort of a, a counterweight pulley system that would account for the the tension that would uh, arise when the two decks were at different speeds, so we could run one speed at you know, seven and a half and another, one deck at seven and a half, another one at 15. And you've got a bunch of slack, of course. So you, you've got a great 10. So this sort of counterweight system would, 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 you know, give the whole system tension so that we could run really slow down stuff over normal speed stuff and then change the speeds. And so you, we get all these layers of varying speeds of vocals but at that point, I you know I incorporated trombone. I was using a Pro One synthesizer, a little a little monophonic uh, wow. sequential circuits Pro One synthesizer, um, and guitar. Uh, Rob was playing guitar, and and it was a mixture of, of of you know sort of loosely composed textural soundscapes and and free free improvisation. Uh, and then we also projected slides and, and uh, you know, did sort of a dissolving slides of, of just abstract images. You were already doing uh, not just light shows, but visuals at that. You would project visuals. Did, at. That's right. The visuals. Yeah, this is probably 82. 82. Oh, my. Wait, I need to know some of these venues. Where were you playing? Uh, uh, well, not that they're around anymore, but I'm just saying, like, that's where it was at, man. Yeah, yeah, it was just so cool. We, we, our one of our first gigs was at a, 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 a fashion show wow. in a club down in Pioneer Square, wow. uh, and you know some guy who who 
who was a fashion designer saw saw what we did at somewhere and said, <laughs> "I want you guys to do do what you do with my you know my models doing you know showing my my work wow. my design." Wow! My, my, wow! That and, is one of the and, hippest and things I've ever heard really, in my life. Really out there music and the, the, the you know the, the the models were not real thrilled at first. When they had no idea until we started making. The sounds. That was a full house. It was. It was. You know, a pretty exciting event, and uh, they weren't. You know, they weren't thrilled with what we. I mean, it just. This wasn't. You know, there were no beats, nothing to dance to. Right. They could. You couldn't. Uh, there was no moves to to hit. Yes. Yeah. So they had. So, but you know, the designer said, "This is what I want. Get out there and do do your thing." And they 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 rose to the occasion and they they found a way to actually have a lot of fun with what we were doing. Um, exactly, man. Oh my god! You know that stuff. If you don't try it, you'll never know. I mean, to me, it's like you just got to keep pushing the boundaries. <clears throat> so that was so that was more like a, kind of a a private gig. But like, was there like a club that? I mean, because that's the thing, Jeff is like there. <clears throat> I don't want to paint with a broad brush, but there was the the we were not saturated with with visual material content like we are today. A lot of it's mediocre, especially in that realm of music that you were developing. There was no template. There was no formula. So I mean, yeah. do you feel like that? Do you feel like a formula has encapsulated? I'm just in all genres of music more. I mean, at that time, I mean. It was only in 1976 when Jerry Wexler and those guys finally codified how you record a studio album. Before that, everybody just did their own thing. You wanted to play on the back of a cardboard box to make a sound. You know, I mean, it was just very improvisational. And I just yeah. wonder about, like, I guess a, a more macro level, are we just flooded with so many? How can you, can you codify the language of music, really? And, and teach it in the academy, or is it something where vocabulary can only grow on the bandstand? Yeah, I, I don't know. I, you know, I, it does seem it does seem harder to to be innovative and um, you know to do new things now as compared to back then. I don't know if that's actually true. Um, well, here's the thing. Let me ask you this. You got paid back then. You can do it now. You're just not going to get. There's no gigs. You know, yeah, I mean, no for, for being yeah. for being too progressive, too original, too dangerous to the bottom line. Where in the past it was, hey, you know, like this is new music. You had journalists chronicling it. The significance of music was much more ingrained in our culture than it is now. You know, I mean, and also just how a musician is viewed. You know, and I just feel, yeah. you know, but, but to me, like back then, the fact that you guys, prime, were you doing anything on the side or were you guys doing everything, you were able to make your living playing music and stuff? No, no, I wasn't making my living. I, uh, no, I had, I had, you know, I worked in a restaurant. Like beautiful. So many others. Yeah, beautiful. Yeah, that was, that was my thing. No, it, um. No, I mean, you know, it was easier to make, a little bit easier to make money then, uh, especially live, now with record, it was all easier to make money then, yeah, uh, but still there wasn't much. Um, no, it was never, it was never, like, huge, but, but, um, were you, um, can you talk about your first experience in the studio, like, uh, did you do any company estates before your first album as a leader in, like, 84? Um, 
let's see. I'm not quite sure what you mean. Well, I mean, like, um, were, were you hired to, were you a studio cat? Were you get hired to do studio Zero. dates? <laughs> Zero. No. Yeah. No, I, I, you weren't I, a studio I, shark, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, I, you know, yeah. and it's, I it's did, I did. A few times, yeah. I, I mean, I can't, I can't, I can't just sit in. I can't play standards. I can't, you know. If anybody wants wants me to do something, it's going to be to sort of add some color or something, some texture or something, you know, evocative, but not necessarily uh, tonal or or you know. Oh, I did. No, no, I, I, and it wasn't like Seattle was a hotbed of the studio scene anyway. But that now I know why you and Michael Shreve get along so well. You guys are such artists. You're too far outside to come back in, you know. Um, yeah. And uh, because he would love to, he said that to me in one of our interviews. He's like, you know, I'm not the guy. The, the, the guy they're going to call to play like that backbeat or that studio session. He's like, mind you, I would like that, but that's just yeah. not the kind of artist that he is, you know. And yeah. How did you? How did you connect? The, there's one cat I wanted to ask you about before Michael is Dr. Patrick Gleason. Have you guys crossed paths together? No, no, I have not. You, you're familiar with who he is? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I mean, he's a dear friend. He's let me stay at his house uh, multiple times. He's a very cool. sweet guy. Um, were there people that you can once you kind of who were your who was somebody that uh, you know did 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 you wind up connecting with? Some of the elders um, down the road, um, you know, Parch might have been gone at that point, but uh, like Sabotnik or, um, you know, anybody that was sort of, you know, in this pursuit that I'm on, it's always like, oh, yeah, um, you know, uh, Bernard Purdy and Chuck Rainey, you know, you think about that Richard T, like that rhythm section, but there were cats before them. And there were cat, studio cats before them. And I just wonder if you had, or even now, who who is an elder that you are able to lean on, not even for music, just, um, you know, for peace of mind as, you know, an artist who's burning? Yeah. <laughs> oh, God, I wish I could say say there, there was even somebody. Um, you know, I, I'm really not... I'm, I'm, yeah, no, I, I mean, I, I'm, it's okay. It's, it's a perfectly fine answer. I mean, are you still, can you talk a little bit about, um, like, where you feel you need to grow the most, uh, where you need to push yourself out of your comfort zone, either, you know, personally or musically? Yeah, you know, I, I, I in recent years, I've, I've really kind of gotten uh, internal in, in, in terms of, you know, electronics, uh you know, it's it, and I've gotten away from playing actually playing acoustic instruments or even using acoustic sound sources. Mm. And I think I'm I'm about ready to sort of go back back to that and 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 you know mix that in with with what I've been doing for the past you know, decade or so. Um, when you say so when you say acoustic, what do you mean? I mean. Uh, I mean, percussion sounds, you know, strings, a- anything. I can't really play anything other than piano uh, that's acoustic. I mean, I can play trombone. I can make, you know, I can make a trombone sound pretty nice. <laughs> I can't play it in, I did. in, a, in a band. I, no, I did, uh, I did. Other than, other than an improv band. Um, but, you know, anything that can produce a sound. Uh, 
you know, bells and, and just, uh, I'm going to get a viola. I love viola. I can't play viola, but I can make sounds with it, I'm sure. And, uh, you know, try, I, I, you know, I play around with the trumpet, um, and, and, and start using that as a, a, a source of, you know, as, as my sort of raw sonic material as opposed to electronics or samples. Sort of get, that for me is yeah. pushing, pushing, pushing the envelope a little bit for me. When was, when was the last time you were tapped into that? Yeah. Um, <laughs> I don't think it's, you Because you have to be, you, you know, that requires you to be very vulnerable. You have to be vulnerable. Yeah. And so, like, the, the yeah. last time you were there, you were in a vulnerable place. I'm wondering what that was. Yeah, 80s and 90s. I think I was just naive. Uh, you know, I, I had no, pro- no problem back then. Uh, you know, I was, that's how I got started. That's, that's how I made, made music. Um, and, and I got further away from that, more involved with electronics and, and, and the studio I got. Um, so, I, you know, um, so now it, it is going to feel vulnerable because, you know, I, I, I'm, I, I don't know. <laughs> well, what is that? It's, 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 I mean, it's just, it's I'm being, no it's being naked eat. to the world and like being okay, you know, sitting in the mess and enjoying it, you know? Yeah, that's a, that's a great quality to have. I, uh, and I think it's naivete back in the 80s, 90s. <laughs> that's what I'm saying. On. We got to get back. That's the granky I'm channeling right now. That 80s, yeah. not, you know, like, you know, fearlessness, like playing beyond. I mean, again, you know, you have to be inspired and connected uh, in order to be vulnerable. So, um, yeah. You know, and I think that when I feel like uh, you can you talk about um, I mean, he's he's meant a lot to me in my uh, in my recent journeys is uh, Steve Roach. Uh, when when did you first cross paths with him? Yeah, I met Steve in the mid I, I think I did a tour in the, uh, of the Southwest my first time through when I was still living in Seattle in 94 and I did a show in Tucson and he came to the show and that's when we met. Whoa. Um, Whoa. What was, I mean, you remember where you played? uh, Um, uh, you know, it was, it was, it was sort of close to the warehouse district downtown. Um, I think there was uh, Matt Bevel, I think after that, maybe had a, had a, had his sort of loop kinetic, you know, installation in the same space a few years later uh, but I can't quite remember well no it's, but it was cool it was pre-internet pre-iPhone you know still pretty old school it was yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, then I you know I saw Steve again I came came through Tucson a few more times I sort of uh, the, the desert really got under my skin so hmm. my wife my now ex-wife but we, we came down here a few times because we just love being here and um, and then, you know, eventually, uh, 2002, you know, actually moved here, but it, it took, took a few years. Yeah, no, I, I came in 03, which is, which is, oh, you know, okay. but, uh, cool. yeah, no, it's, uh, I, you know, I'm just a blind monk stumbling into grace at 45 years old. So it's just like, I'll let you, uh, yeah. I, know, I know you got to get on to other things, but we should definitely pick this conversation up and, if you're ever interested in doing an in-person video interview, I mean, or you got any gigs, like, you know, it's great to have you as a partner in town, man. Cool. Thanks. Yeah. I, I, I appreciate that. And, um, 
I, I'll, I'll be in touch. I don't, I don't have anything happening, but I'm, I'm looking to put something together. Yeah, man, you're getting hungry, man, you know? Just, just stay yeah. vulnerable, man. Yep, yep. Yeah. And uh, do you ever get to the, uh, uh, you know, Steve's uh, uh, lounges? Well, I mean, uh, I, I try to go as much as possible. Okay, so I'll, I'll uh, I, I'm, uh, likewise, I'm, I'm there, I want to be supportive, I'm super thrilled that he's doing this and it's uh, dude I, honestly man like it's so superhuman and uh i just want to be part of it man yeah good yeah well we'll have to we'll have to talk uh, absolutely uh, man yo there. be in touch seriously yeah all right good. be cool brother yep, yep. take care bye yeah